0: All the smart guys are investing in it, and as I said, I was feeling really smug and overconfident, very arrogant, and I put a large portion of my portfolio that I'd already made a profit on from getting out of the bubble, I I put into this. Well, probably within 18 months, it went to zero, and they went bankrupt.
1: Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stott from A. Stott's Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest Joe Pugliano. Joe, are you ready to rock? I am. Andrew, it's John. John, sorry. And I'm looking at it. John. John, why did I even say, I was talking to you about the average Joe out there. That's right. Oops. Perfect. Well, in this show, just so you know, and the audience knows, we don't do any editing and all that stuff. So there is my little flub up, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, let's get started. I'm going to tell you about John. He is the author of The Robots Are Coming, a human survival guide to profiting in the age of automation. He is also the host of *Well Wellsteading Podcasts. And I just want to personally congratulate you for having 299 episodes. Thank you. You're welcome. And the founder and money manager at Investable Wealth, LLC. John's circuitous career path included military service as both enlisted and officer, a corporate career in industrial sales, and finally, a late-blooming entrepreneur. John has an MS in systems management from the University of Southern California and a bachelor's of science in environmental science and engineering from Penn State. In a nutshell. John is the quintessential millionaire next door. John, take a minute and fill in any further tidbits about your life.
0: Thanks, Andrew. You know, pretty much covered it there like we talked about. I should change my name to Joe because I am the regular everyday Joe. I'm just a regular guy. I've made a a lot of mistakes in my life, but I've also, you know, made some pretty good ones. And I'm a father, you know, I'm that quintessential millionaire next door. I did, I'm a 20 year overnight success. I did the right things long enough where it's worked out. We married the same woman for 30 some years. We have six grown children, three grandchildren, two more on the way.
1: I'm just the regular guy next door. Fantastic. And for those listeners who are not familiar with The Millionaire Next Door that we're referencing to, it was a great book that came out, I don't know, it must be 20 years now. I know it's on my shelf right behind me, but I'm not going to go get it. But the point on that book that, that John's referring to is the idea that keep your life simple, keep your expenses down, don't go into debt, invest carefully for the long run, build a business, those types of things are many of the things that were discovered in that survey. Would that sum it up as far as that, what that yes. book was describing?
0: Yeah, and that came out in 1996. Dr. Thomas Stanley was the primary author. He was a professor at, I believe, University of Georgia. I remember that date because that was an epiphany in my life. That's really when I shifted from being an employee to being something more. And that book doesn't tell you how to get rich, doesn't tell you how to invest, doesn't tell you anything like that, but it does tell you about the characteristics of a million, you know, your typical millionaire, and it's um it's not what you see on Hollywood or it's not people wearing Rolexes or driving uh, you know big fancy cars. When I read that book, it rang true to me. It, was, um, it really described me, just a regular guy. And I knew that my, uh, my ultimate wealth was going to come by just being a you know, small business owner, being the guy that I am. And that, that put me on the right track.
1: Yep. So for all the listeners out there that haven't got that book, I highly recommend it. And you can also hear that John does too. Well, now it's time.
0: His daughter, I believe, he, he passed away here recently. His daughter, I think, has come out with a new updated version of it. So it's definitely worth a read.
1: That's interesting. Well, I'll include it in the show notes. And maybe I need to go back and revisit that now that it's been updated. That's exciting. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it. And then tell us your story.
0: Sure. Well, let me tell you, my, I've had a lot of bad investments. This one happens to be the worst because it was probably, although it wasn't as large of a sum of money at the time, it was a large percentage of my overall investing portfolio. So I'm going to take you all the way back to the late 90s. And this is during the internet bubble. But my story doesn't involve a technology stock. Okay? And that's actually the sorry part of the story, is that I saw the internet bubble coming. I, I got out of technology stocks. I was, um, I thought everybody else was, was foolish and I knew better. And so I, I got out of that train wreck, but I stepped right in front of another one, right? And so that's the problem of it. I was, uh, I was arrogant and overconfident. And so what I did was I invested, because I knew that the technology stocks were going to blow up, I was still young and naive enough to not know that that was going to blow up the rest of the market as well. I thought it would just be confined to technology stocks. But what I was looking for was then was investing in the, the polar opposite of technology. I was looking more like a brick-and-mortar, a retail-type service company or a hands-on service company. And at the time, there's a company that I think they're still around. They've been in and out of bankruptcy, as you'll hear my story go along here. But they were called Boston Market. It was a restaurant franchise, or a restaurant chain, and they were the concept. In those days, the buzzword was concept, right? They were the concept restaurant. They had this great idea about serving good, healthy, home-cooked kind of meals, you know, full chicken dinners and things and all the, all the sides. It was good. It, it, was, it was fast food, but it was, it was good, healthy food. But the big concept of it was you didn't have to eat there. You could take it home. And because there were more two-income families and less people cooking at home, that was just the rage. It was the meal replacement, I think they called it, was, was the big buzzwords and i bought all into that and i said yeah these, these technology stocks are going to go down these this brick and mortar type of restaurants going to be there it's got great reviews everybody loves it it's all the rage all the smart guys are investing in it and as i said i was feeling really smug and overconfident very arrogant and i put a large portion of my portfolio that i'd already made a profit on from getting out of the bubble i, I put into this well I didn't initially, I didn't invest in the initial IPO. And in fact, I've, in all my years, I've never bought into an IPO. Later reasons I've come to learn why, but back then I didn't know. I just probably missed the opportunity. It it listed, I think at about $20 when it came out in maybe the mid nineties, it went up to around 50, 60. I think I got in somewhere in that 50, 40 range, 40, 50, $45 range, probably within 18 months it went to zero and they went bankrupt. So I didn't lose. 10%, 20%, 10%, 20%, I lost 100% of a large portion of my overall investing portfolio. And it was a total disaster.
1: And let me just ask a question about going to zero. Why did you continue to write it down or did it just basically hit a point where all of a sudden it gapped down to zero, it went bankrupt and you, you just couldn't get out? How did that, yeah. the ending Yeah, we know what they say,
0: how, how'd you go bankrupt? It was slow at first and then all at once. I, I you know I don't remember the exact circumstance of it. I'm pretty sure it totally fell apart pretty quickly. But I was arrogant, right? I knew better than everybody else. It was uh, it was going to get better. It, it, it couldn't go. You know, it went down thirty percent. That just meant it was going to bounce back up higher. You know, I was I was arrogant. I I looked at the charts. It seemed like it made sense. Mm. I was I was I say young and inexperienced. I was in my thirties. So I wasn't that young, but I was still still a fairly fairly new investor
1: got it so what did you learn from this
0: yeah so i learned a number of things and that's really what's taken me to where i'm at today you know i learned i'll talk about two things but but they're really in two two headings one is the technical aspect of it and the other is the psychological as far as the technical aspect of it i learned to diversify I, when I was young and new to investing, I thought, I heard all the hype and I thought, oh, you can get rich quick overnight. Or, you know, you put all, put all the money on black or pull on this particular horse and you're going to win. Cause you know, you have to, you have to be in the game to win. You have to take big risk. Well, I've learned over the years, that's not true. You have to diversify. And when I talk about diversification, I'm really talking about position sizing. So my personal style is to Have very large diversification. I know some people don't, but I I like to have 30 30 stocks. I like to have 30 positions. The reason I like that is that that gives you a three percent position in any one stock. And I may go higher than that. I mean, I really like five to ten percent is is, I think an okay ratio. But 30 gives me, or the three percent gives me a broad exposure. You know, there's I don't know seven thousand stocks listed in the in the United States stock exchanges. I can find thirty good ones right <laughs> it 's not like it 's not like they 're going to be hard to find, so I can find thirty quality stocks, maybe dividend payers, blue chip companies that have been making profits for years or decades i 'm looking at that quality of it and i 'm looking at at that diversification and The reason the three percent is so important to me is is that even if I had another disaster where it totally went to zero i 've only lost three percent of my overall portfolio so you know, the flip side of that is even if it's a big home run, you're not going to make a fortune. But again, I'm not trying to hit a home run. I've learned over the years that, you know, slow and steady wins the race. And if I can just the miracle of compounding, if I can get six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10%, my money is going to double in no time at all. If you're in this for the long run. Yep. So, and also along the way, if you're cautious like that, you'll, you'll put yourself in a position when that slow pitch comes over the plate and you do get to hit the home run. You know, I'd rather hit base hits all day long and have bases loaded and then get to hit a home run. So that's why I like the diversification. And as I said, I really like the the concept of that 3% position because, I mean, literally your stock can fall 50, 60 or more percent, and you're only losing 2% of your overall portfolio. So Again, you're not going to get rich quick overnight, but that compounding really works well. The other side of it that I, that I like is that, or that I've learned on the technical side is that, uh, let, me, let me back up for a minute. So when people hear that, they're also going to say, hey, I, I, don't, I can't invest in 30 stocks or 25 or 15 or whatever. I've only got $5,000. Well, here's what I would tell you. You shouldn't be investing if you only have $5,000. You don't usually hear that on Wall Street. Everybody wants to tell you, oh, $50 a week or, you know, $5,000, you can invest in all these things. You can invest, but it's very hard to be properly diversified with a small amount of money. So I encourage people on my podcast, I mean, the the three things I really harp about is that you have to first learn how to earn, then you have to save, and then and only then you invest. So if you can't have a diversified portfolio, you're not an investor and you shouldn't be doing it.
1: And can I add to that, one of, the ways, one of the ways to think of that too is that let's just say that someone has actually reached a point where they have cash on hand, they've saved up $5,000 that they say, this is allocated for investing. Another way of thinking about that is, you know, maybe one of the ideas is just to buy a broad-based index fund. And then once you've got your $5,000 completely diversified, then maybe take the next $200 that you get and put that into one stock with the idea of the, your overall portfolio is truly diversified through the ETF. And then you start to create slowly a portfolio of one, two, three, four, five stocks that are still a very small portion, but they don't have to be a tiny portion of that overall money because that 5,000 is fully diversified. What, what are your thoughts about that?
0: Yeah, I, I agree, basically, with what you're saying. And I, I don't want to dissuade the thing about ETFs. I think ETFs have been the greatest invention in the last you know, decade. I don't know who came up with them, but he should get a Nobel Prize. ETFs are a fantastic way for the little guy to diversify. I invest a lot of my portfolio in ETFs. Generally, they're, they're sector driven, so I'm looking for a little more risk. But I always say that if I only had one position I could take, it would be SPY. You know, buy the S&P 500, you're broadly diversified you're going to be in the 500 best corporations or companies in America, the biggest anyways, you're going to get international exposure as well because you know, 45 or more profits and revenue are coming from overseas. So that's a great way to diversify. And if you have smaller amounts of money, that's where I'd be putting it. But again, I personally don't consider that investing because it is just you're buying that index and you're hoping it goes up when you get to the point where you have more money and you can actually get into specific stocks, that's when you have the advantage to hit that home run, you know, because you're never going to hit the home run in the index. You're going to hit a home run if you can have a concentration in really high quality stocks. And when you have that money, you can get that diversification, you know, why buy into just the big 500 when you can pick, if you just invest in the top 5%, you know, you're talking about 25 stocks. So why not, why not invest in the cream of the crop as opposed to all 50 or all 500?
1: Got it. So what was a psychological, you mentioned a psychological learning lesson.
0: And if we have time, let me mention one other thing on the technical side. I also learned that, and that's not to say that I'm never going to diversify, like we also talked about, I I use ETFs. I may also take very concentrated positions above 10%. There's a a number of years ago when I went all in on gold, I was looking at kind of a a bounce in gold back uh, after, after 2011 when it fell apart. But I had learned my lessons from the previous days where anytime I take a position, probably more than 10 or 20%, it's in one, one small sector, or one small stock, I buy a protective put. So I'm a big believer in puts. If you buy the put, you know up front what your loss is. And you can, you know, based on the, the amount of money you want to invest in your time frame, you can say, oh, this is gonna cost me 2%, it's gonna cost me 5% or 6%, but you know what your loss is up front. So you've automatically limited your loss. And, you know, for people that say, well, I don't want to lose 5% up front. Okay. Well then they're not ready to take the risk, right? (laughs) Because that, that put is being priced in the market based on the risk of of people that are a lot smarter than you and I, right? It's the interaction of all these hundreds of thousands of investors or millions of investors that are causing that put call ratio to be what it is. And so, and the cost,
1: the cost of that put. On average, what would be what would be the average cost of a put, let's say across a person's portfolio, if they were taking these types of position?
0: Yeah, so it's totally dependent on market conditions and volatility, right? But basically, the the beta of the stock. So, you know, on the S and P five hundred, I don't know, probably like a a couple a put for a couple months, maybe three months, might be as much as two percent, two and a half percent. Of course, going back two years ago in 2017 when there was virtually no volatility in the market, you could get a, a put in the S&P 500 for next to nothing. Certainly much less than the yearly dividend would be the S&P 500. You could almost have bought a put for the whole year and, you know, minimize your loss at, at virtually nothing. If you're getting into something that's volatile, like, I don't know, Tesla, a put on Tesla for three months is probably going to cost you 8% or
1: something. Got it. It
0: could be, very, it could be extremely high. And but again, you- that's based on the volatility of the stock.
1: Right. And when you're looking at it in your own strategy and portfolio, what you're talking about is a put on, let's say the S&P 500. So you're really buying a put in case this market goes down, or are you talking about a specific put related to that specific investment?
0: I'm talking about if I would take a concentrated position, if I would want to go out and buy 50% of my portfolio in Tesla tomorrow, I would buy a put, I, I, I might do that, right? I mean, who knows, I, I might take the risk. I might think for some reason it's gonna work, but I'm smart enough now no, to say that I'm not gonna lose more than 5% of my overall portfolio on this investment. So, you know, I run the numbers, you know, say I was gonna invest, just make the math easier, you know, $100,000. If that put for say three months was gonna cost me 5%, I'm buying it for $5,000. And I'm saying up front that I'm willing to risk losing $5,000 because I think the Tesla's going to go up. My put will go down in value, but the stock and the value of the price will go up and I'm going to make more than that 5%. So I plotted out, i know where my break evens are. And if I wasn't willing to lose $5,000, then I shouldn't be investing a hundred thousand dollars in Tesla because, you know, we've seen in any given week, Tesla can easily be up or down $5,000 on a hundred thousand dollar investment.
1: Got it. Okay. So then the psychological,
0: yeah, the psychological part. And this is more important than the technical. I think that, I don't know, 90% of investing is it's in your head. It's the human nature side of it. It's not the balance sheets and the, the technicals. It's It's about not only your human nature, but the human nature of everybody else in the market. So what I learned was, number one, ignore the hype. Ignore Wall Street. I don't want to say that what they do is a pump and dump, you know, where they're out there nefariously saying how great something is at the same time they're selling it but if it isn't a pump and dump it, it's certainly a lot of marketing and so I've learned over the years and and maybe even to my own detriment but I just don't believe the hype I'm very cynical I know that there's an agenda on every side of a trade and if I'm buying something I want to know why that guy's selling it to me you know if I if I think this is going up why does he think it's going down and so ignore the hype the other thing I would say is never conform never be a conformist when we you know you hear about the fear of missing out or everybody else is doing this you want to do it too that to me that's conformity and anytime you conform you're um, at best you're gonna get mediocre performance so got it never believe the hype and never conform are my my two biggest takeaways from a psychological standpoint and I think if you approach every trade that way you'll limit a lot of your losses up front because it'll keep you from doing you know, stupid things.
1: Got it. All right, well, let me uh, summarize what I take away from it. I wrote down two core lessons for myself and for the audience. The first one is CD and the other one is WP. So what do I mean by CD? Confidence or overconfidence is the problem. Diversification is the solution. The second one is, the problem is W, that you're wrong, and the solution is the protective put. And this is a great example for all of us. I've listed out the six most common ways, mistakes that people make. The number one mistake that people make is that they fail to do their research. And you know I think that we're all guilty of that in some way or another, but the number two mistake is what this, this episode is really a lot about, which is failed to properly assess and manage risk. And you've now described for the audience two very clear ways to do that. Now, an audience member, listener may say, oh, I'm gonna own 10 stocks instead of 30 because I can't find 30 or whatever, fine. Right. But the main thing is that you've got to, you know, the average person's holding one or two or three, <laughs> so. Right, and that, I, exactly, that's the
0: problem. It's not that 10 or 12 or nine's the problem, it's one people are putting it all into that next cryptocurrency yeah. or it's Bitcoin cash or you know, whatever it is. And that's, I guess that's something I really want to hit home to is a lot of people can say, ah, John was an idiot. You know, how did he do that 30 years ago or whatever it is, you know, investing in a stupid restaurant concept, take home food. That's stupid. Yeah. It's stupid. Like Uber Lyft. It's stupid. Like marijuana stocks. It's stupid. Like 3d printers. You know, it's, it's stupid. Like cryptocurrency. I mean, you can come up with, Whatever the hype is today, that's it the rhymes. way it was back then. And you get caught up in the moment and you don't really you don't really diversify. And there are people that make, can make money in some of those things, but the average person probably isn't, and it never changed. And you go back to the railroad stocks in the eighteen hundreds, there were fortunes made, but there was a lot of money lost.
1: Actually, speaking of that, before we get to the actionable advice, I wrote a paper for my one of my courses i did in my phd in china was about the cultural history of china and all that so i decided to compare the boom in the chinese railroads to the boom in the us railroads and i went back over time and looked at it and re re recalibrated a chart to lay down the number of tracks or the the miles of tracks and then starting at kind of time zero when it all started and what you see is, of course, China has added huge amounts of tracks over time. But it was in the U.S. that it was a massive bubble. And it went up so high. And then it crashed for about 100 years until now the amount of track in the U.S. is equal to the amount of track in China. And China you know, has just been steadily rising. For, so for those right. people that think that there was a boom in the communist China allocation to building railroads, actually the boom came in the capitalist allocation of money too railroad. so there's a yeah, little yeah. history lesson
0: and i might be wrong here too but i do think that congress had an incentive for how much mile a track you laid too right i think there was uh, there was quite a bit shenanigans in there
1: yeah and a um, lot of land allocation and stuff so it was uh, land grants right, yeah. oh, oh, oh yeah it was uh, corruption oh yeah
0: yeah america
1: <laughs> all right so based on what you've learned from this story and what you continue to learn what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Remember, you were excited about an idea; it made sense at the time. You were highly confident, and you weren't a dummy that just kind of, you know, ran into a broker and said, "I'm going to buy a stock." You thought it through.
0: Yeah, I guess I mean that, that one action. I'm never good at one of anything. I, I have ADD, right? I'm all, I can't probably focus on one thing. But I mean, it's really about mitigating risk, right? Whether you mitigate risk through your position sizing, whether you mitigate risk through a protective put, whether you mitigate risk by just not investing in what you don't know about, you just mitigate your risk and, and really don't, you know, don't invest any more than you're willing to lose. And that's, that's the beauty of the protective put is that it, it forces you to make the decision upfront what you're willing to lose. Imagine if you're rock climbing and you don't have a, you don't have a safety line. Well, don't, you know, and if you're not, if you don't want to fall more than 10 feet, don't climb higher than 10 feet.
1: Beautiful. And that's uh, mitigate risk. Got it. All right. Last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months?
0: I guess speaking about risk, my number one goal is to get out of this market before it falls apart. And I don't know if that's necessarily going to be over the next 12 months. We are in a very interesting times. I think mostly because of intervention of central banks. But I don't want to put all the blame on the central banks because the reason they're doing it is because we live in interesting times. I mean, we're demographically, the world's getting older. We don't have the growth prospects we did before. There's technology. I wrote, as you mentioned earlier about my book, I wrote a book about technology. I think that's going to bring some big challenges, a lot of disinflation in a lot of ways, taking the cost out of things, whether it be taking out employ, you know, employment opportunities or just taking costs out of products. So I think we, we live in very challenging times. Markets are high now. Valuations are high, but not unreasonable given where we're at with low interest rates. And so uh, my, my concern is, is that I can, uh, I know I don't have a crystal ball. I can't time it perfectly, but I don't want to be the last guy standing in this market. I want to I get out before the music stops.
1: Well, I think in 12 months, we'll be back in touch and we'll see where the market is and we'll see how your portfolio is done. But I have a lot of confidence in you based upon what you've learned. So listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we end, John, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result, and congratulations, you have taken your worst investment and turned it into your best teachable moment for the rest of the world. Do you have any parting words for the audience?
0: Hey, I just say that whole thing about nonconformity, apply that to your whole life. Don't just look at it in investing, your career choices, your education, uh, all those things. You, you are put on this earth as a unique individual. Find out what that purpose is, and then go make the world a better place using your talents and abilities.
1: Beautiful. And I don't normally interject at this point, but I just want to say that I had a student come to me and they said, well, I'm studying accounting and I want to work in finance. And somebody said that, you know, it's not a good idea to do it that way or something. I said, who said, who said, and who are they? It's your life. Mm
0: -hmm. So I love
1: it. I love it.
0: You know, people always come to me and they want the one investment or they want to know if this is a good idea or that. I, you know, I'm old enough to know I'm 58 years old. I've made my own wealth. And I, you know, I have clients that obviously built their wealth and I know I've studied people over the years about how they built their wealth. I know people that made money in stocks and real estate and small business working for a startup. There's a million ways to make money, but that isn't necessarily the way Andrew's going to make his money or John's going to make his money. The best trade or the best way to build your wealth is what works for you. And, Don't try and do what someone else is doing. Do what, you know, if you sell short, sell short. If you trade Forex, trade Forex, but do what's going to work for you, not because someone else told you how to do it.
1: Fantastic. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our wealth, fellow risk takers. I'll see you on the upside.